Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. Well, let's start with the balloon. The balloon has been shot down. This Chinese balloon, uh, which has terrorized the U.S. over the past week, has finally been uh, put back into the earth uh, with fighter jets apparently shooting it down. And uh, my question is, what do we actually know about this balloon? Is this actually an espionage balloon or is this just, for example, a weather tracking balloon, which many countries use? I don't know. Um, I suspect we're actually not going to find out. <laughs> That's my prediction. But I do find it just amazing to see how this has been spun into some sort of existential threat. And uh, of course, it's used, being used in a partisan way. So Republicans are saying that Biden... It's so weak that he allowed this balloon to fly over the country. When apparently there's been other balloons before it um, from China, both under Biden and also under Trump. But um, anyway, that's that that's to be expected. But, you know, not knowing so many details about the story, I'll just say it's just funny to compare a freak out over a balloon versus how normal it is for us to, you know, bomb other countries, ship off bombs to other countries, sanction other countries. All of that, all those intrusions are completely normalized and sanitized. A balloon over the U.S. triggers a meltdown and even uh, military action. So um, it's just something amusing to see. And uh, maybe I'm missing something, uh, but it's just it's hard to take all of this seriously. Uh, meanwhile, in a real war, in a real danger situation, uh, there's a new revelation out today um, from the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, where he gave an interview to an Israeli television network. And he basically gave us more evidence, uh, or at least more statements, that bolster what we already knew before, which is that there was the outline of a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia last spring, but that it was sabotaged by the West. And we know this from Ukrainian media sources. Uh, and we also know this because Vladimir Putin said that that's what happened. Um, and because also Fiona Hill, a former White House expert, said that U.S. officials knew that there was a peace agreement between Ukraine and Russia. She just didn't explain what happened to it. But we know from the previous two sources that at least there's this claim that it was the West that sabotaged it. And now we have Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett appearing to add more. He spoke to Israeli television and he said um, the following. Uh, that basically there was peace talks and Israel was helping, was somehow involved in helping to broker them. He says that Boris Johnson advocated more radical measures. Macron and Schultz of France and Germany are more pragmatic. Uh, and Biden was going both ways. He supported both approaches, both the hard line of Boris Johnson and the softer line of Macron and, and Schultz. Uh, and he goes on, but the West has decided it is necessary to continue to smash Putin and not to negotiate. All my actions were coordinated to the smallest detail with the USA, Germany, and France. And then he's asked, and they broke off negotiations? And he responds, by and large, yes. Uh, they broke off the negotiations, and then it seemed to me that they were wrong. I'm sure we had a good chance of success if they hadn't stopped trying. And that's the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. And something he said there was interesting, where he says, just going back to earlier in his statement, he says, the West decided it is necessary to continue to smash Putin. Well, if you go back to that uh, 
account that was out in Ukrainian media about the meeting between Boris Johnson and Zelensky, citing sources close to Zelensky. That's pretty much the exact same language that was used, that basically Boris Johnson told Zelensky that now is not the time to negotiate with Putin. It's the time to pressure him um, because he's vulnerable. It's the time to fight him. And so here's Natalie Bennett using sort of similar um, language, that the West decided it was necessary to continue to smash Putin. And now we have the result. And how's that going for everybody? Um, the uh, There's, you know, increased Russian advances. Uh, Ukraine is now getting n- more weapons. But as we've previously discussed, some of those weapons won't be arriving for, you know, in some cases, at least a year, like the Abrams tanks uh, and other missiles as well. So this week, the U.S. approved new longer range missiles for Ukraine. But that's also going to take a long time for them to get there. And I think this policy of using Ukraine to fight Russia has been the disaster that everyone's predicted it would be, at least anyone who, was, who had their eyes open. And the policy of using Ukraine to fight Russia to the last person, as Lindsey Graham put it, uh, is having its predictable result. And it's a nightmare. And um, the question is whether there'll be any reporting in Western media about admissions like this, because so far you can't find in Western media anything about peace talks between Russia and Ukraine getting somewhere last spring and the U.S. sabotaging it, because that undermines the narrative we're supposed to believe that we can't negotiate with Russia because they're just set on conquest, that, that there's no that there's no speaking to them. Um, and so will Israeli Prime Minister, or former Israeli Prime Minister Natalia Bennett's admission get any traction? I doubt it, because we're not allowed to learn about stuff like this. Uh, the only place we've come close to learning about it in the West was when Fiona Hill wrote the article in Foreign Affairs last fall saying that U.S. officials knew about a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine, but she doesn't say anything more. She doesn't say what happened to it. And I think she doesn't say that because they don't want us to know that actually this was sabotaged. And the question is, is it too late now for that kind of talk between Ukraine and Russia? Um, certainly, I don't think Ukraine will be getting better terms than, than Russia was willing to offer them last spring. I think they'll be worse. But uh, I at least think any attempt to negotiate is better than the current which is just sacrificing Ukraine even more. And finally, the last thing I want to I want to talk about is I have a new article out at the Gray Zone. I'll post a link to it. It's called In Duma Cover-Up, the OPCW's new, uh, new Smoking Gun Backfires. And what this is about is that basically uh, last week, the OPCW put out a new report about Duma uh, where this alleged chemical attack occurred in April 2018. And Syria was accused by rebels of being responsible. And the U.S., along with uh, uh, Britain and France, bombed Syria. And then, if you follow me, you know that there are whistleblowers that came out from the OPCW who said that actually when we investigated this, we didn't find evidence of a chemical attack, but our findings were censored from above. Uh, And the OPCW basically tried to justify the U.S. narrative that Syria was guilty. So now, fast forward many years, and there's been a lot of twists and turns in this case. Uh, the OPCW puts out a new report from something called its investigation and identification team, and they accuse directly Syria of committing a chemical attack in Douma in April 2018. And the reason why that's significant is because before they just suggested it, but they didn't outright say it. So the, the significance of this new report is another outright saying it. And what they also do is they come up with new lines of argument to make that case because... We know from leaks from the OPCW that all the claims they tried to make about 
suggesting Syrian guilt were undermined by the actual evidence. So this new report is just a new is attempt to make a new argument to make the case because they're not going to own up to censoring their own investigation, which undermined the narrative Syria was guilty of a chemical attack. And I'm not going to go into all the details here. You can read the article if you want to. I'll link to it. But basically, uh, in short, the OPCLB has put out a new argument that is based on finding basically a brand new smoking gun. And this brand new smoking gun is apparently a chemical sample that they say proves that chlorine gas was used. The problem with that, as I show in my article, is that this sample has never been previously acknowledged by the OPCW, even though they say it was collected uh, in the early, uh, really in the, uh, like, they, they say it was collected the day after the alleged attack, and they say that it was received by the OPCW a few months later, in July 2018. Well, in the OPCW's final report of March 2019, there's no mention of this sample at all. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. But now all of a sudden, so many years later, now we're told, oh, this is the sample and this is what proves it. The additional problem is that the sample was not even collected by the OPCW. It was collected by what they call a third party. And I'm pretty sure that that is the White Helmets, who, as I talked about in a previous article that I wrote uh, last year for the Gray Zone, have been used in multiple OPCW investigations. And that's a problem because using the white helmets violates the OPCW's own rules, which say that we need to have full chain of custody over every sample. Otherwise, we can't trust it. It could be tampered with. Uh, it could have been improperly collected, all these things. So we, every sample we use, we have to collect it ourselves. And in this case, the OPCW is not just using an external party in the white helmets, but also a party that is very compromised. They work with insurgents. Um, they've advocated for Western intervention in Syria. They're funded by the same foreign governments that have bombed Syria. Uh, and also, they've incredibly accused, in the case of Duma, of staging a hospital scene to make it look as if they're treating victims of a chemical attack, when, in reality, everyone involved, including people who were in the videos, say there was no chemical attack and that basically the White Helmets staged this scene. So there's a lot of problems with the sample itself. And then there's a scientific argument that they make which is actually undermined by their own findings, which I won't uh, explain here because it's you know it takes a while to explain. But you can read it if you want. But the point is that you know this story is so important to me because first it's an amazing story of a international organization, the OPCW, being totally compromised to justify uh, NATO military interventions, and it's a, an amazing case where you have brave people from the inside standing up to oppose this as is revealed from all the leaks we've gotten. And how have these whistleblowers been rewarded? Well, when the, when the OPCW came out with this report and they said that the OPCW has accused Syria of a chemical gas attack, not one media story on this even acknowledged these whistleblowers' existence, which is pretty extraordinary. So even if you think they're totally wrong, these people, these whistleblowers who challenged the OPCW cover-up, even if you think they're totally wrong, the fact that you can't even mention them in a story about the OPCW accusing Syria of chemical weapons is extraordinary because when you have a reality that the people who actually went to Syria, including these whistleblowers, challenged the OPCW and accused them of, of a cover-up, I think that's relevant to at least mention in a story about the OPCW now coming to a... That validates uh, what it previously said. You at least should acknowledge their existence. Give them one line, but they won't even acknowledge their existence. In the Washington Post, in the BBC, in Reuters, in Al Jazeera, 
They can't even mention the existence of these whistleblowers. And to me, the reason is obvious why is because they don't, if, to acknowledge their existence means actually contending with their arguments and their findings. And they can't do that because they know that these, that these whistleblowers are right. And to me, there's more evidence of that by the fact that now to try to double down, the OPCW put out a report that basically tries to introduce a brand new smoking gun based on something that, that they never claimed they had before, which is extraordinary. And it's further undermined by, by the fact that this comes from a totally compromised source, and it makes an argument that is actually undermined by the OPCW's own findings, which I detail in the article. So it's a new chapter in this amazing story. It's so widely ignored, um, and I get part of that is because it's complicated, and there's a lot of technical stuff involved in terms of the OPCW and you know uh, chemistry and things like that. So it's not easy to follow, but the story at its core is a... Um, a allegation that was used to justify U.S. military strikes, and then an organization being accused by its own inspectors of covering up their own findings that undermine the U.S.-led narrative. And that's an amazing story. And to me, it's similar to what we saw with Iraq WMDs, but it doesn't get nearly uh, the attention that it deserves. And um, I'm certainly staying on this case, and there's a lot more to come on it because uh, it's there's a lot of corruption and a lot of fraud to expose. So I don't know. Stay tuned on that. Okay. Let's take some calls. And great to see so many people here. Um, okay, Sam, go ahead. Hey, Aaron. How's your weekend? Good. Um, well, it's actually, I'm happy you mentioned the Syria thing because, uh, you know, I, I had discussions with people. I mean, even if you want to take it at, at a face value and you say they might have done it. I asked people, I said, all right, look, they had the area entirely surrounded. They cleared 80, 90 percent of the territory. What what's the benefit of, of doing a gas attack? You could just wait these guys out by like a week, um, a month. They're going to run out of supplies very quickly. And then you decide, yeah, you know, what? we're going to just do this one thing out of nowhere. And that makes no sense. And then on top of that, it always changed the the story with the inspectors. First, they said Ian Henderson. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong. Ian Henderson. Yeah. Ian Henderson. They said, well. He wasn't really, he wasn't uh, part of the team. And then you show, not only was he part of the team, that he was requested by the OPCW to lead the investigation. Yeah, well, he, I mean, that was, uh, he was certainly requested to be there. Uh, mm -hmm. He was, he was, he was not sent to Duma in the first wave of deployments, but about halfway through, they sent him there uh, and they wanted him um, because they needed ballistics experts. And, and so, yes, and, and he's listed and, and then they claimed he wasn't part of the team. Well, then I also produced evidence of uh, of documents, OBCW documents listing him as a team member. So that was um, that was quickly, you know. So that's just one more excuse that they've made uh, to um, to try to invalidate him. But, but the point is, look, whether he like they they have succeeded in changing the subject to these matters that ultimately don't really matter, like whether he was an official team member or not. The point is, he went to Duma to investigate for the investigation. He took measurements, he took samples, he examined the cylinders, and the question is whether or not his findings are correct, whether or not they stand up to scrutiny. And that's what the OPCW has tried to avoid because these whistleblowers, their actual findings and their arguments have never been refuted. The OPCW has tried to change the subject and say, oh, these were just marginal figures, they didn't have access to the information, uh, you know, they, they're just disgruntled. They wanna change the subject to uh, you know their spin about who these people are, but ultimately, 
it doesn't matter. The point is whether or not the science holds up or not. And case after case shows that it doesn't, that the science is on the side of these inspectors. Well, yeah, then they change it to, well, they're just disgruntled because their findings didn't match the rest of the team findings. And it was, I'm like, well, can you con- contrast the differences? But for me, the biggest revelation came from you, which was showing that, you know, the initial picture, what was it, through Bellingcat, has it has a cylinder facing one way. And then when they delete and upload another image, it's facing the complete other way. And their argument was, well, we, that was deleted because somehow you could see somebody's face in that first image. No, no, not in their face. No, this is really funny. So the, yeah, cylinder, jeans. <laughs> so the cylinder, the cylinder initially was pointing the wrong way. Yep. Uh, it was, it was it, like the, the nose of it was face up and they must've, and they, and so they put out a, and, and so there's a picture of the cylinder pointing the wrong way. And you can see someone's, someone's legs next to it. And, and the guy's wearing jeans. And they deleted that picture, and they said the reason we deleted it is because we don't want to dox this guy. But not because you can see his face, but just his genes, which is such a joke. And mm-hmm. the reason why they deleted it is because they actually had the cylinder pointed the wrong way. So then they rotated it the right way, and then they uploaded those pictures. And, yes, yes that was Bellingcat. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> actually, you know, I was uh, – I don't know how I came across it, but I, I was uh, – reading like trying some updates and then i found these different twitter things and my god these pro uh regime support people are insane and i was laughing you might appreciate this uh there i don't know if you saw this it uh, came out in january an atlantic council article arguing the u.s should redo their sanctions on syria uh of course this is uh, an article i think uh your your uh number one fan charles uh, lister wrote it say, uh, suggesting that the sanctions aren't really working we have to redo the sanctions yeah. because and i'm like wow you care so much for the people of syria and this guy here's here's a fun fact for you and I'm, I, I i literally had to read this like three times he has you know he has all these different like um twitter accounts and different uh youtube things or outlet things uh middle eastern studies all these different ones and one of them he runs is called a uh counter-terrorism thing. Um, if I find the link, I'll, I'll put in the chat. But essentially, it's supposedly countering extremism. And the first article you read on this Twitter thread was a recent like deep dive into how HTS has improved their improvised uh, explosive vehicle devices. And in the article, it talks about how these rebels were fighting the forces. And I'm like, so you're countering extremism, yet you call HTS an actual Al-Qaeda off-branch Rebel forces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, my God, there's no no cap to these people. There's no limit to these people. They just get more and more insane. I mean, one think tank is, if you look up the former U.S. envoy to Syria, he runs the most insane Twitter's accounts or channels, like something called Phoenix something, or it's it's insane. I mean, these people are just so gung-ho. And no matter what evidence comes out, you can't change. Even if tomorrow, Aaron, we finally discovered that for a fact that the chemical attack didn't happen. So then they would say, well, that's not really a big deal. And as you pointed out, well, no, it do- is a huge deal because if this whole thing relied on the white helmets, then your source in itself is a problem, which means we don't know how many other, uh, quote, chemical attacks that these guys have suggested are, uh, you know. Yeah, well, that's, the, that's the argument. I, I started to hear that argument. Like after it became just so impossible to deny the basic facts about Duma. I started hearing, well, okay, fine. Even if it's unclear there, what about all these other chemical attacks? And the point is, in every major case, you have evidence undermining the narrative. Uh, in Guta 2013, that was the supposed chemical attack that triggered Obama's red line, or should have triggered Obama's red line. 
There's so much reporting that has come out. At the time, U.S. officials who didn't want Obama to bomb, they leaked that actually the evidence was not a slam dunk. And there, that was a deliberately chosen language because it referenced the slam dunk of the Iraq war. And then same with Kanchi Kuhn in 2017. Cy Hirsch did a whole bunch of reporting on that, as he did with Guta as well. So every time you have a major allegation of chemical use by Syria, there's so much countervailing evidence. And of course that raises questions about um, the entire thing. When you have, when you have all these – when first of all, the allegation doesn't make sense on its face that why would Syria do the one thing it knows would trigger Western military intervention? The war was going and, to – And why do these chemical weapons always hit civilians? And not the insurgents when they're, you know, literally capturing entire provinces from Syria. So, you know, um, Al Qaeda took Idlib from Syria. Uh, where were Syria's ke- chemical weapons against them? So, you, you, you want us to believe that Syria is using chemical weapons against civilians, but not against forces that are killing its soldiers and taking territory? It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but that's the point. Um, you don't need to make sense when you're trying to justify a war. You just need enough people to believe it and to repeat it. Um, Sam, thank you for the call. Yeah, take care, man. You too. Uh, Karthik. And everyone, I'm going to go a little bit faster today because we have limited time. So I'm going to be a bit quicker on these calls. Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, I just wanted to congratulate you for your recent excellent job uh, hosting at uh, Jimmy Dore Show. It was excellent, I thought. Thank you. Uh, And there'll be more of that soon. Okay, and then so, yeah. but the the China balloon. It really seems like uh, the U.S. is really pushing for war with China as soon as possible. Uh, well, you know, and oh yeah, yeah, and we should say recently, like there was a U.S. general who said that you know we, we should prepare for war with China in twenty twenty five. So yeah, certainly, it's pretty soon. Certainly, there are people who want that. Um, I mean, I, you know, uh, yeah, he said that he said that he had a. Um, he said that he had a gut feeling. Um, General Mike Minahan, uh, chair or head of the U.S. Air Mobility Command, um, he said he had a gut feeling we're going to have a war with China in, 20, in 2025. Yeah. He says, I hope I'm wrong. My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Um, Xi's team, reason, and opportunity are all lined for 2025. So sort of like a, a war mystic he's predicting, he's seeing in the future war with China in 2025. Don't you think it's strange that, like, none of these uh, people in the ruling class are scared of a uh, nuclear war at all? I do think it's strange, and it's because they're – to be in the ruling class, you have to be pathological. You have to believe as if you have this inherent right to dominate the world, and all the consequences of it are secondary, even nuclear war. One of my theories is that, like, cause, like I, I know in the last 20 years, since 9-11, there's been about $5 trillion, I think, that's, like, missing from the Pentagon. Yeah. I always thought uh, maybe that went to, like, a bunch of, like, buy, uh, bunkers for all the politicians and all the uh, people associated with them. I wouldn't put it past them. I would not put it past them. So, last thing I'll say is, uh, did you see the uh, video that uh, uh, Bernie did with Biden recently about the student loan? I did not, no. Uh, well, I, I know you're the uh, uh, the standard uh, Bernie apologist, so, so you can see it. Okay. All right. It's I'll, totally, I'll honestly, really sad. It's just him humiliating himself. It's Biden, or it's Bernie uh, pretending that Biden's actually fighting for student loan debt. It's, That's it, sad. it's honestly well, one of the saddest videos I've ever seen. That sounds very sad. Well, uh, if you can, post a link to it in the chat. Oh, I will. Okay. Good. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Okay, Brent. 
Hello, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes, hi, Brent. Hi, so um, regarding your topic, the balloon, the Chinese balloon or whatever it is, uh -huh. um, U.S. claims it's a surveillance tool and China claims it's for, for quote-unquote, civilian research. Even if it was for uh, surveillance, the U.S. is most likely uh, monitoring all the countries around the world, including China. So I don't know what the big deal is. Um, so what? What's the big deal about this this one balloon when the U.S. has military bases all over the world? What's the big deal about this balloon in particular? Great question. Um, the, uh, others don't have the right to, you know, send balloons our way. We we have the right to send military bases and bombs and sanctions, but others don't have the right to uh, to send balloons. And again, I, I'm not even convinced this was an espionage balloon. It could, you know, these things have different purposes. Right, right. And even if it was surveillance, um, that's totally, that is, um, that doesn't justify war. So I, I hear no. like, I read reports like this could, um, be, um, provoking war. Like, I don't think surveillance justifies war and this balloon, I think maybe the media is trying to push this, make a big deal out of this in order to suggest that China is trying to go to war or something. I don't know why this is such a big deal. And, um, it just doesn't make sense. And in regards to, I hear reports that uh, China's tr going to invade Taiwan. What are your thoughts on that? Um, does China, I, I read the reports that China's totally wrong, but obviously that's, that's mainstream media and that's all I have to go by. So do you believe China would be justified to invade Taiwan? Because I don't know, um, U.S. has a lot of military bases in Taiwan and maybe, um, the U.S. is using Taiwan as a proxy war towards China? I don't think the U.S. has a military base in Taiwan. Um, I don't think they do. Uh, I could be wrong. You know, it's not, a, it's not an issue I know about. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, what, what, I, what I think is this, it's not our business. I don't see what right. the U.S. has in, in, in Taiwan. Um, I think the, the current system of, you know, um, two systems, one, one country. That makes sense to me. Um, you know, China, as far as I know, respects Taiwan's own system of government, but still considers it a part of its country. And, um, I don't know the long history and I, I suspect it goes back a long time and I'm sure people have conflicting views, but what I think is this is not our business and, um, the status quo of, uh, two systems, one government. I don't know that, 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 that makes sense to me, but what do I know? Right. Right. And then uh, one last question. You said you're coming back to, you're going to host Jimmy George show again. I said, I am most likely doing that very soon. Yes. Okay. Uh, when, is, when are you coming back? Uh, I, all, all I can say is most likely very soon. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay. Maria. I always get a little bit triggered by the China-Taiwan thing, but because I have a long history in studying their political histories, but I won't, I won't do that. I just called really quickly because I think, you know, I watch CBS Sunday morning, not the other Sunday news, but 
this morning they had a segment and it was about the balloon and it was laughable because they opened up by saying this is what's been captivating Americans this week and I just wanted to scream at the TV it's like no what's captivating Americans is getting their electric shut off and being cold and having to take on two or three jobs just to feed their children that they never get to see because they work all the time. That's what's captivating America, not a stupid Chinese balloon. I totally agree. I totally agree. But that's, you know, it's been captivating, um, you know, uh, policymakers and pundits because they're, because they have the luxury of just hyper-focusing on foreign enemies because they don't want us to focus on our domestic issues here at home. So that's what they're speaking about when we talk about captivating Americans. I mean, the Americans that matter to them. uh, One other quick thing on CBS Sunday morning, to be fair, this morning they had like a choir person that was invited to the White House Nixon era and she held up a sign that said, stop the killing and protest of the Vietnam War. And just said, stop stop killing people. And Nixon just kind of sat there with his arms crossed in the front row. But that was a neat segment. Um, so I guess they kind of were trying to sneaky be fair or recognize that we shouldn't be doing war. I don't know. But... The balloon sec- segment was just weird. Anyway, I'm done. Thank you, Maria. Thanks for the call. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Sam. And Sam, if you're there, there's a mute button. should be in your bottom left that you tap to unmute yourself. And I will give you a few seconds to do that. If not... We'll move on. Okay, Sambo. Okay, Aaron, what's up, brother? How's it going? Okay, so uh, are you better at writing or listening? Because I see you on YouTube videos, especially when you have a hooligan with a hooligan idea on. You let them get their whole talking point out and then respond. Uh, yeah, I try to be as, uh, I mean, it depends on, on what kind of mood I'm in. I can't say I'm always, uh, you know, balanced and, uh, mindful, but, uh, I think, uh, it's, yeah, I, I try to have as, if I'm having a debate, I try to be as good faith as possible. So writing or listening, which one are you better at? Am I better at writing or listening? Um, yes. I, I think I'm, a, I, I, I think I'm a pretty good listener. I, I do. Cool. Um, I do. All right, brother. Second question is, what can we do besides voting and sending a hundred fat dudes with hammers to get these sucky Republicans and Democrats out of office? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. I mean, uh, some kind of mass movement uh, around issues, people coming together, you know, recognizing that not everyone's going to agree on everything, but on the important issues like War and, uh, I mean, for me, healthcare and uh, better wages, I mean, those seem to be things that could be organizing masses of people around, but it's, it's easier said than done. Um, but I, so I, I want you to know the answer to your question. Unfortunately, I, I don't have any, uh, 
Magic Perfect. Amateur. All right, brother, you can put me to the next person. All right, thanks for the call. Hello? Hi. Oh, hi, Aaron. Uh, I'm a really huge fan and a first-time caller. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the country I'm from, Iran. Uh, Iran. So, uh, as you know, the recent protests, um, now they're mostly over. But I wanted to ask you, um, because I'm kind of saddened by it, because like, I don't like the government. I um, wish they would go to hell. But at the same time, a lot of people opposing them, typically the supposed opposition outside the country, um, are pretty terrible. And it kind of gives me... Um, like reminders of the first revolution in 79 because the government at home was not great but then the people opposing were terrible and eventually kind of it ended up with a new terrible government that was even worse than the previous one so i wanted to see if uh what your opinion is on what might happen and that would be another syria or would it be more better like tunisia because there's a lot of really horrible people that are worse than this government and they're pretty bad of course but yeah I don't think there's a prospect of uh, there being another serious situation in Iran because Iran's such a big country and um, it's a lot stronger than Syria is. So it's a lot has a lot more ability to resist a uh, foreign sponsored proxy war. But um, certainly, the U.S. will always find people in any country it wants to destabilize to uh, to support, and um, I think that's been the case in Iran. I mean, that's why. The U.S. has been backing that the uh, the MEK, right? That cult, yeah. Yeah, because because you know, um, but it's it's the people who get left in the middle. And yeah, I, I have, I mean, all my Iranian friends, who all not who all now live in 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 the West, they they all have horror stories about the government, and um, but none of them support the policies of the U.S., which is sanctions and mm -hmm. so, you know which is aimed at making their families suffer so that they turn against their government. And there is a fact, it does seem to me that the government does have a strong base of support. Um, I you know, I think they're really incompetent. I think that aside from just being bad in general, hmm. their incompetence will make them lose even support of, of the government because they're really incompetent. Well, I mean, just look at the... Pro like, look at the uh, funerals for Qasem Soleimani. A lot of people came out there. Because, like, yeah. you know, a lot of people supported him, but the current government is really yeah. yeah. Well, I get it. Look, uh, you know, um, I get that there's a lot of frustration with the government. Um, same thing in Syria too, where people, even you know, where you know, people feel as if the government's not not owning up to how bad things are, and um, and not in touch with the suffering of the people. You know, um, <laughs> so it's because um, yeah. because situations are pretty bad in terms of food and. Um, uh, the winter, I do think like a couple months, let's say eight months, one hour, something like that, there probably would be protests over food mm. because um, it's really bad. They, they, some people even ration bread now. And, Inside Iran. Yes. Inside Iran. Yeah. 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 The, um, and even a northeast city, Torbajam, had like its entire fuel cut off. And this is in a country that uh, has like one of the largest oil and gas reserves and oil, uh, gas that subsidized. So it's pretty bad. Aside from just being generally bad, they're really, really, really bad at their job. So that's what I think would lose them a lot of support from even hardcore supporters. Mm. Well, you know, and that's up to them. You know, I just, for me as a Westerner, I, I feel like I have no, there's, there's, the West has no business at all in Iran's internal affairs and no business trying to exacerbate conditions just so that people turn 
even more people turn against the government. Mm -hmm. If people want to oppose their government, they should. But I just don't think U.S. policy should be involved in, in fueling that because that just leads to suffering for everybody. So I just want to finish up with, I really hope you can maybe do some on gray zones, some kind of article or video uh, on the various supposed people opposing them, because MEK is yeah. like small and mostly a cult that does terrorist attacks. Yeah, There's a whole array of groups, and they're kind of divided between two, the monarchist one, which is bigger, and I mean, they're bad, but they're not as bad as the other group, and that's like a combination of supposed liberals that are extremely pro-Western and various probably the worst group of them all, various separatist group, mostly Kurdish, but they're like the worst of them all. So uh, maybe it'd be good if you do something like that, because I do see this continuing just because yeah. the encompass of the government was just so much bad. So bad. When I was on the uh, Real News, uh, mm -hmm. I interviewed an Iranian leftist who's based in Europe. Uh, I don't remember his name, but I remember... Uh, I thought his perspective was really interesting. And uh, I think it's a good idea to do something like that again. Um, you know, I, yeah. So uh, thanks for that. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Okay. Sterling. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Okay. So after listening to Rania's show earlier and listening to this today, I hope you don't mind if I just quote Smedley Butler. And for those of you who don't know, he was a highly decorated Marine in U.S. history during the time of FDR. He fought in World War I. Um, well, I'll just let this quote tell you a little bit about Smedley. He said, um, after it was all done, so he's not, a he's not around for World War II, but somebody was wondering earlier on Rania's show, how long have we been like this evil internationally? He says, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interest in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for national bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House at Brown Brothers in 1902 and 1912 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interest in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927, I helped see that Standard Oil went on to make its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have, been, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. So that's way back before World War II. And I listened to this young man talking to Rania, and he was so desperate for like, it just seemed so new to him that we would be just so much about just greed and other nations. And so I thought, oh, he needs to hear from Smedley, who basically, like my grandfather who fought in World War II, said the same thing. He told me war is about money and a lot of people make money on it and everybody else pretty much dies. So, um, yeah, it's a real ugly thing. But, you know, you have to keep the truth out there and propaganda is what keeps it going. Right. So, if we, yeah. So anyway, thank you again for you. Thanks. And thanks for that quote. I, it's always uh, edifying to hear that. Oh, it's so great. It's, so he's got so many. I so, highly suggest people look up, look into Smedley. Yeah. All uh, right. For sure. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh, Lance. And Lance, if you're there, there's a mute button in the bottom left to unmute yourself. And if not, we will go on to John. 
Uh, hi. Um, yeah, I remember seeing you way back. I can't remember if it was Democracy Now! or the Real News Network, and uh, you were a lonely voice on Russiagate, but I really appreciated it to hear sanity from someone. Now I hear more voices about it. Um, but thank you for all of uh, your coverage on that. Uh, what I wanted to ask about was uh, I'm hearing there's a potential rapprochement between Turkey and Syria going on between Erdogan and Assad. And if that happens, if they have a summit or something, what is what do you think that means for the U presence of U.S. troops in Syria? It's a great question. Um, if Turkey makes a deal with Russia and Syria, it would be a lot harder for the U.S. to stay. But as long as the U.S. has Iraq in its pocket, then it can at least maintain one of those bases, uh, the base at Al-Tamf, uh, because they supply that base just by crossing the border to Iraq. And um, so as long as they have Iraq, they'll be okay. But yeah, not having Turkey anymore would make it more complicated. And Turkey wants to basically go after the Kurds who the U.S. is protecting. And uh, it's, it's complicated. And I, you know, unfortunately, I haven't paid as much attention to that issue as I would like to, just because I'm, I'm, so, I'm tied up right now writing a book about Russiagate. Um, yeah. and, uh, and by the way, I, uh, recently, a great piece appeared in the Columbia Journalism Review um, looking at just what a complete catastrophe U.S. media's coverage of Russiagate was. It's by Jeff Gerth, who is a veteran reporter, uh, won the Pulitzer, worked for the New York Times for three decades. And he just meticulously goes through all the various iterations of the media's Russiagate fraud. And it's devastating. And it, and it appears it's not in like a fringe outlet. It's in the Columbia Journalism Review. And the people who propagated Russiagate are very upset about it. They are not happy. Uh, so I really recommend people read that. And um, I, uh, I'm going to be interviewing Jeff Gerth soon for my podcast, Pushback, which um, should be out next week. So, yeah, it's really funny to see the reaction to Jeff Gerth uh, because he's, he's, you know, like with someone like me, you know, I'm a, I'm a leftist. I'm, 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 I'm younger, you know, I've, like I come from the lefty world. So, you, you know, it's easy for them to dismiss me, but for someone like Jeff Gerth, like highly decorated, he's won the Pulitzer twice, George Polk award, big, you know, huge track record. Now he's basically calling out the media for his Russiagate fraud. And it's, it's really pissed off the right people. It's really great for me to see. <laughs> yeah. It always struck me as some sort of weird religious cult believing in that, you know, Donald Trump was a Russian yeah, asset. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I, it seems there's more people coming out and it's an attempt to deprogram yeah. the system, but the system's resisting the deprogramming. I mean. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just like a cult. Just like a cult. Yeah. Uh, thank thank you. you, John, for the call. Okay, Ruben. Hello. Hi there. Oh, hey. Um, I'm a little bit nervous. First time caller. Um, I've been following your work here and there ever since you were smeared by the mainstream media. I just wanted to know, like, who you were and why, like, why, why are these, like, major institutions smearing you? And then um, I had questions about Russiagate on how, like, everyone was just going up of, like, just blaming Trump for everything that was not, like, not even true, but anyways, um, uh, uh, like other people have um, have have told you questions about this, and you if you'd answered it. But um, my first question to you, I'm not sure if you said it, but um, 
how did you feel when like the mainstream media kind of like acknowledged that it the Russia gate was not a hoax or i mean i mean it was a hoax my bad well i don't think they have and uh, I, I don't think they have acknowledged okay. no, I, I think they've acknowledged that the steel dossier was a scam uh, uh, but it. then they pivoted to saying oh well, the steel dossier didn't matter it was it was only marginal which all which is not true it was very influential both in media reporting and also in the fbi's investigation so uh to me the only reckoning in the mainstream so far has come from jeff girth in the Columbia journalism review and that's why these same people who push Russia get are so mad about it because it's not they're so they're so humiliated that this is coming from the Columbia Journalism Review, a premier publication. Um, so but I don't think that they've owned up to it. And I, they're going to continue resisting on, owning up to it because this was such a embarrassing scam that, mm-hmm. you know, to acknowledge that is just too humiliating for them. So they're and it's too important to their political agenda that they're they're going to keep doubling down. Of course, and my last question is: um, I was wondering if you if if you've been following what's going on in in Lima, Peru, because like shit's going down in Lima, Peru. Like, like I think right now, up to fifty nine people have died in terms of protesters. Um, and I'm following it a little bit. Um, a lot. Like I saw some. Like I saw a an Instagram reel from like the Washington Post of this one girl saying that like there's a lot of protesters and she was just coming at it in a one dimensional thing. But people on the Washington Post reel was like, okay, why are they protesting? So like they were asking very basic questions to what this one reel only mentioned it because they were protesting due to lack of food. And I did like a remix type of reel saying, you know what, it's what I found out is that a, a one, like one, one of the major reasons why the people in Lima, Peru or just Peru in general are protesting because of like, like, like the um, people in working class and lower class are suffering, are genuinely suffering. And the president, who's a female, um, her and her besties are basically running Peru amok. And what Washington Post and other uh, mainstream media are saying that these protesters are like a little bit sexist because they have a female president. And I just had to like make a like make a reel on my Instagram post saying that like whatever this this like this journalist that was in Peru saying that like oh they're protesting because of lack of food I'm like you know what no <laughs> this is why they're protesting one of the reasons not all the reasons but this is one of the reasons so I was wondering have you been up to date of what's going on in, I in the protests followed, of Peru? I have not followed I know that there was basically a a coup or mm-hmm. um, and there were protests and then the, the protesters are being repressed um, and but I have not had a chance to follow it because I just um I've been focused on my normal, you know, stories of Ukraine and uh, oh. Russia Gate and, and Syria and also finishing a book. And um, so I don't but I uh, I would like to do something on it. And it, um, I will when I can. I just um, I haven't been able to follow it the way that it deserves. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Anyways, that's that's basically it for me. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, OK. Um, Matt. Hello. Hi there. Hey, Aaron. So, yeah, um, this is pretty much about, like, the uh, Chinese pull on there. But uh, to me, I feel like uh, it was more so of a political ploy. That's why they kind of blew it up the way they did. Um, also, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen a report that Donald Trump supposedly let three Chinese balloons yeah. fly around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so to me, I just found that funny that after, you know, Joe Biden looks like the hero of shooting it down and everything after that, then all of a sudden here's a report of like, oh, not only is Trump a Russian, you know, but here he, he lets, you know, the Chinese balloons go out. And um, to me, that just kind of ties more so into like, I really feel the, uh, you know, I don't want to say deep state, but, uh, you know, the powers that be, the, the security state, um, also the military, uh, you know, they're, they're working together to try to keep Trump from a second run there, things of that nature, which Trump is a shit bag. Let's get that understood, you know. But to me, it just seems like there was a bigger play, uh, a bigger play here in uh, motion that a lot of people didn't kind of realize. And to me, like that story coming out after the balloon got shot down and they made all this hoopla about it, you know, just a weather balloon or whatnot. And now all of a sudden, you know, oh, well, yeah, Trump let three fly past. And it's just like, come the hell on here now, man. Like, this is freaking ridiculous. <laughs> I uh, I totally hear you. It's such a spectacle. And uh, we'll see how much mileage it gets. But I, I think we'll be hearing about this for a while. Yeah. Um, but that, that was pretty, yeah, yeah, that was pretty much my call there, man. Thank you again. All Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thanks for the call. You too. Okay, John. And... We might not have time for everybody, so uh, I'll, but I'll try to get to as many as I can. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about the actual uh, battles uh, going on um, in Ukraine, specifically around places like Bakhmut and Siversk. There's a lot of activity there recently and a lot of Russian advances, uh, and it looks like and this has been confirmed from, I believe, Estonian intelligence um, and also British intelligence that the situation in Bakhmut is getting very, very difficult. British intelligence says that Ukraine uh, is being uh, gradually isolated in the area. Mm. There have been a lot of geolocations of uh, Ukrainian uh, brigades uh, leaving the area. Um, and every single day, it seems that Russia is just making the gradually uh, progressive advances in the area. They've almost or maybe they've effectively just cut off one of the main highways going into the city. Um, and they it looks like they're advancing from the north of the city. Uh, and this is it's been getting worse and worse every day for about two months now, um, just gradually. And they're at the point where they might have to abandon the city. And Zelensky has said, I believe he compared it to the Battle of Saratoga, where he says that uh, the fate of Bakhmut will decide the fate of Ukraine uh, in the war. And then he's also said that if Ukraine falls, that will create World War Three. Yes. So I'm wondering yeah, right. exactly what the future events are if it looks like this this – uh, city of a pre-war population of about 75,000 um, is going to fall into the hands of Russian forces. You know, I don't follow the battlefield situation that closely just because I, I don't, it's not my forte is like, like, I got um, you. but, um, but I, I do know that, I mean, you know, I do see the reports about casualties. And, and so there was recently, there was something in Der Spiegel, the German outlet saying that German intelligence was warning that Ukraine's losing a lot of people every single day in yeah. and um it's not surprising just given that russia has the advantage it's it just it has more people it has uh it has better equipment um and it was one of the reasons why pouring in weapons into ukraine i always thought was just insane because it was only going to prolong the war um so 
I'm I'm not surprised now that um, you know, and 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 the way uh, Bagmut is described, it's a, it's a meat grinder where basically just right. Russia is mowing down all the Ukrainian forces that they send in, and apparently, uh, Ukraine is is sending in more people um, than they can really afford uh, to lose because they don't want to lose this symbolically, even uh, though. It might be it might be better for them to you know have their forces elsewhere. So it's just uh, it's horrible, and I just all these lives being lost for what like mm-hmm. over over NATO membership and over who gets to rule Crimea and the Donbass. It's just um, right. And and the thing about that is everybody knew that Ukraine wouldn't be able to join NATO. They were going to be a NATOized state to yeah. ensure that Russia actually advanced into Ukraine. But Zelensky said, you know, they told me to to pretend that I wanted NATO membership and very exactly Exactly. right. And the the Pentagon has even said that they don't believe that Ukraine has the capability to take back Crimea. So these are really, ultimately these are just fake arguments and will likely result in Ukraine. In in my opinion, at least losing its, its four oblasts um, and not really be a functional state anymore. That's right. That's exactly right. I, that's where I think this is headed to, and it's it's a it's just, I mean, it's hard to find words to describe the tragedy. It's it's just horrible. Yeah. It's so senseless. Thank you, John, for the call. Okay, Jeff, and we're not going to have time for all the remaining callers, but I'll get to as many as I can. Okay, Jeff, go ahead. Hello, Aaron. Hi there. So uh, I want to bring up Hawaii and see if your circle of influence can can bring more attention to the situation in Hawaii and the the effects of the military on Hawaii. Like uh, last week or last weekend, they, the Space Force of all people dumped 800 gallons of diesel fuel on the on the top of Haleakala, the one of the mountains. Well, the the main mountain on Maui, and we had the Red Hill fuel tanks that are leaking into the Oahu aquifer and the military presence here in Hawaii is just horrific. And, uh, if, if nothing else, I would just like to see more of a, uh, impetus on trying to demilitarize Hawaii and, uh, and return it to, you know, a, a more, uh, you know, nat- natural state and, and not be a, a military outpost for the United States, even if it doesn't end up being independent, at least it wouldn't be a military outpost. What do you think about that? Yeah, look, all sounds good to me. That's, uh, that sounds good to me. And thank you for bringing it to our attention. Uh, Sam. Sam, if you're there, there's a mute button. There you go. Hi, Aaron. Hey, thanks for uh, doing this. Uh, I just have a comment about the, the, the Chinese balloon. I, I I really think it's a. I mean, the question whether it's a it's a weather balloon or a spy balloon. Um, I mean, I think in my opinion it's probably fifty fifty. But I th- I really think that um, there is definitely uh, from the Chinese side. Definitely, there was some incompetence either on the steering. Whether I mean either way, whether if it's a spy balloon, because if you, I mean, I, I just don't imagine how they would throw it literally in in Montana intentionally. It just doesn't make any sense. So definitely there was a mistake and it was let to fly across the United States 
I mean, as a gift, as a propaganda gift, obviously, which was definitely, I mean, used to the top. It was, I mean, it was milked, <laughs> I mean, everywhere. It was really crazy. And, uh, but I mean, the, the really interesting thing that I just, I think is fueling this propaganda war. Uh, I mean, the, the Chinese side are obviously, they're, they're putting out that this is uh, unintentional, you know, it's weather, etc. But they're internal, internally, they're kind of, you know, shooting shots that, you know, it's just a balloon or whatever. So they're kind of downplaying this, you know, with, uh, understandably. Uh, I just wanted to to see, like, if you if you really think that uh, if if you if if you think that this is, uh, I mean, rational, for, uh, what's the rational response is going to be? What the rational response to, to the balloon will be? Yes. By China or by the U.S.? By, by, by China, yeah. Oh, I, I think they're, I, I mean, like, what are they going to do? They're, they're going to complain. Maybe they'll lodge a formal complaint about their property being destroyed. But I don't know. I mean, how, how important is this to them? It's just a, uh, um, it's a balloon, you know, whether it's for espionage or weather or, or whatever. But, uh, like, China doesn't want, like, China just wants to be left alone. <laughs> That's my read of China. <laughs> And they're always just going to respond to whatever U.S. provocations are made. But, you know, like we saw when Pelosi visited Taiwan, um, some people were predicting a war, but that didn't happen, obviously. And, you know, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and also also the, the uh, I mean, it's really because uh, it comes at a, a really historic events in, uh, in, 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 in the Indo-Pacific, in you know, with the events in Obviously, the news from Philippines about the new military basis, uh, the doubling of the budget of Japan, military budget for this year. Uh, all, you know, it, there is news about possibly a new uh, military or a new alliance between uh, India and, and Australia. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that's happening around the same time. So I don't know. I mean, did the Chinese want it to uh like send a message but it got out of hand maybe they wanted the balloon to be close to the shores and you know just steer it away and it didn't that's that's a possibility great question those are good questions those are good questions thank you sam for the call okay last caller uh trey i would just like to comment on the balloon fiasco uh about specifically about the three balloons that supposedly went through the United States airspace during the Trump administration. If that was the case, do you don't think Pelosi, Schiff, all the idiots in Congress uh, would have taken another opportunity to impeach Trump if that were the case? I mean, come on. And, and the DOD has already refuted the fact, or the supposed, supposed fact that that flew through the airspace three times under Trump's administration. That's it, bullshit. Okay, so you're, so, so you're questioning the the Democratic claim now that this happened under Trump, right? I mean, okay. if, if that were the yeah. case, they would have impeached him on that too, right? Well, the only look, look, <laughs> I I think I think it's listen based on how people like Schiff behave, it's quite possible that yeah, they, he would have jumped on it like Pelosi. Yeah, but Schiff, but, they would but, all but, on but but they might say, and again, I have no idea what they're, they might say. Well, they kept this from us. We weren't informed about this. And, and are now, you kidding? <laughs> okay. no, look, they, they they know when he sneezes, but not when. Not when an airship goes over our airspace three times. 
Yeah. Uh, look, serious? I, I you think know what I'm saying? I think you're raising a fair a fair reason to be skeptical. Uh, fair enough. Uh, like, I take your point. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Trey. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And 